Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. All right, everybody go ahead and move back to your seats. Good to see you all. Um, we are swiftly seeking to rectify the, the Mother's Day situation, but we're going to take care of it. Our children are going to come back at some point, and it will be guaranteed adorable. Uh, so how's everybody's week? Anything new, cool, startling happen? Anybody read the news, maybe? Jeez. Of course, I'm referring to the fact that uh, Brighton and Hove Albion beat Manchester United 4-0 yesterday. Golly, I know you're all as heartbroken as I was. Devastated, devastated. Uh, so we started a series last week called For the Sake of the World. Um, our, our bigger vision for this year is, you know, we, we've spent all this time over the past couple of years talking about kind of our allegiance to King Jesus, like rallying around King Jesus, his embodied act of faith. And now we're pivoting to say, okay, when Jesus is on the throne, how does that kind of flow to us, but then flow through us um, out into the world? And in this whole kind of spirit of renewal for the year, we wanted to renew some of that outward-focused language uh, that we have in the church, where I think for a lot of people it has uh, maybe got a little bit of a nasty connotation to it. It's things that we're nervous about when we talk about evangelism, when we talk about justice, when we talk about reconciliation. Some of these ideas really need a renewing. And I think we're in a really beautiful opportunity um, as the church in this moment in history to, to kind of come back to some of those ideas and to allow God to breathe new life into them. And I think this project feels especially vital um, even today with everything that's happening in the news, with kind of the whole uh, you know, debate about abortion uh, kind of coming up again and it kind of sending everyone into a tizzy. This wasn't something that most people expected. Um, but one of the things that broke my heart this week was just seeing the response and the responses to the response and how dehumanizing even the conversation about abortion is before we even have a conversation about abortion. You know what I mean? And it just shows me like we have gotten way way, 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 way off course. And so last week, I kind of ended with this. For us to be the church is to provide a radical alternative to the world that just might save it. I think for a lot of Christians today, our posture to modern issues stems a lot more from political ideologies than it does from the gospel. And a big part of why I think that is what we've seen in our posture to the world over the past 100 years and even earlier is that our job is to go into the world and then try to like, uh, impose Jesus in places. Um, you know, usually that's kind of a white Eurocentric vision of Jesus. And we put that there and that's the thing that we're called to do. That's the kingdom. And I think what has happened is because like historic, like in recent history, the church has been so geared towards that posture when it comes to evangelism, when it comes to missions or whatever it is, where we're trying to impose the kingdom on the world and calling it the gospel, we end up taking lesser arguments. And in actuality, our allegiance to Jesus starts to kind of rot out of the core of that posture. 
And then we do what everybody else is doing. We just get in these debates about trying to legislate our morality one over the other. And as, as we're seeing even today, hey, Maddie, Hi. come on in. Um, I think even as we're seeing today in the national discourse, like our country has basically just resolved itself to just legislating and unlegislating back and forth between these two extreme poles of left and right. That's all we know how to do anymore. There's, there's no possibility for compromise. And I feel like, honestly, there's a lot of days where I feel like we're just rearranging the furniture on the deck of the Titanic. Yeah, I mean, it's funny, but I, that's actually how I, like, I don't have a lot of hope if we continue to go in this direction as a country. I don't have a lot of hope for us being able to maintain any semblance of togetherness, the, the whole United States bit of it. Like, I don't, I don't see this project turning out well unless something dramatically can shift. Um, they still haven't put me in charge yet. I don't know why. I could fix this thing in like a year, but I'm an immigrant. <laughs> Can't be president, you know? So the question becomes, what's our role as Christians in this? Like, I, we're seeing, you know, kind of the, the demise of our culture. And, you know, I mean, I almost want to say that prophetically. Like, I'm, I'm calling it. Like, we'll, we'll still be here, but I don't have any like illusion that this, you know, the kind of shining city on a hill vision that we, that there was for this country <clears throat> is going to last for much longer. And it really, the opportunity for us as Christians is to come back to say, where have we missed the mark? And who are we actually called to be for the world in this moment? And that's a big part of what we're doing in this series. Like I knew this series was going to be important and vital. I think this week reminds me of how uh, imperative this project really is. Uh, so I'm going to pray, and uh, we're going to get right into it. <clears throat> so Heavenly Father, we do uh, testify to the truth that you're here and that you are with us, that you are a God who turns curses into blessings. Um, and Lord, all of these things that, you, that are happening in, in history and in culture, in societies, the ebb and the flow of it, you are the one consistency. You are the one thing that is constant in this universe, certainly in the human species. God, I pray that we, um, even in tumultuous times, would find ourselves uh, kind of strapped to you, lashed to you as our mainsail, that we would turn to you in times of despair and confusion, um, when it feels like everything around us is spinning that we would center our focus on you to give us some direction, to give us some stability. Lord, may we as the church in this season really understand what it means to be the church, what it is that we are to offer the world, but that means that we have to get our own house in order. That means that we have to lay down some of our idolatry some of our infighting, some of our dissatisfaction with one another. We need to come back to you, and in doing so, we come back to one another. So may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever-pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So our main passage today uh, is going to be from uh, the, the letter 
of 1 Peter. So uh, we've looked at Peter a lot, especially kind of through Passion Week and in Resurrection. And we followed his story that, you know, Peter, he was always kind of like one step ahead of Jesus or one step behind. He was very action-oriented and he was, he was always trying to do the right thing, but he couldn't just slow down enough to really listen to Jesus on Jesus's terms. Um, and, and like many of the disciples, he had this idea of who the Messiah was supposed to be. And even he would tell Jesus who he's supposed to be, which always goes well when you tell the Messiah how he's supposed to be Messiah. Um, you know, everything falls apart in that last week in the, the passion narrative. Um, Peter walks away in shame and disgrace. He encounters the risen Jesus. Um, he's reinstated by Jesus and he's empowered uh, to be this kind of foundation for the church. That is what his name means, the rock. And I love the two letters that we have from Peter to the church. Um, probably the church in Rome, um, but we're not entirely sure, um, because we find here a very mature Peter who has lived into the, the name that Jesus gave him, and he has become solid, even unshakable and, and unswerving in his faithfulness uh, to Jesus. And so I love this passage that we're going to read today uh, because I, I hear his story. Like this is hard-earned truth for Peter. He doesn't say these things casually, and he's really challenging us as well to grow up in our maturity to find that solidity um, that he has found in Jesus. So this is First uh, Peter 2, 1 through 17, and we're going to be reading it in the New Testament for Everyone version. So put away all evil, all deceitful, hateful malice, and all ill-speaking. All ill-speaking. Not some, but all. As newborn babies long for the spiritual milk, the real stuff, not watered down, that is what will make you grow up to salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Come to him, that living stone. Humans rejected him, but God chose him and values him very highly. Like living stones yourselves, you're being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices that will be well-pleasing to God through Jesus the Messiah. That's why it stands in Scripture. Look, I'm setting up in Zion a chosen precious cornerstone. Believe in him, you'll not be ashamed. He is indeed precious for you believers. But when people don't believe, the stone which the builder rejected has become the head cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble as they disobey the word which indeed was their identity. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's possession. Your purpose is to announce the virtuous deeds of the one who called you out of darkness into his amazing light. Once you were no people, now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. My beloved ones, I beg you, strangers and resident aliens as you are, to hold back from the fleshly desires that wage, which wage war against true lives. Keep up good conduct among the pagans, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they will observe your good deeds and praise God on the day of his royal arrival. Be subject to every human institution for the sake of the Lord, whether to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish evildoers and praise those who do good. This, you see, is God's will. 
He wants you to behave well, and so to silence foolish and ignorant people. Live as free people, although don't use your freedom as a veil to hide evil, but as slaves of God. Do honor to all people, love the family, reverence God, honor the emperor. So there's a couple key phrases that I want to pull out just to kind of help parse out what it is that Peter is saying here, because of course this is very dense, and it reminds me of that passage that we looked at last week in 2 Corinthians 5, where Paul has such dense language, and there's so many phrases that he's kind of stitching together, it really bears slowing down and understanding what it is that he means from piece to piece. So first of all, he speaks of Jesus as the cornerstone. And in building in, in that time, you, you needed like just the right stone to be the foundation to build the wall. And if you didn't have that proper stone, uh, you know, the, the whole wall could sink, the ground could shift underneath your building project or whatever it might be. So you needed a large, heavy stone to be that foundation. So what Peter is telling us is, you know, Christ Jesus is this cornerstone. But the builders rejected him, human beings rejected him, they continued to do that, they cast that stone aside because they didn't think it was the right stone for the project. That wasn't how we're, that's not what the building is going to be built upon. But what God is doing is he's chosen that stone that has been rejected and he says, no, actually, this is the exact right fit for the project that I have of building this new church, this new creation. And so Jesus becomes this firm foundation upon which this whole new humanity project is being built. And then Peter says that we are a royal or a holy priesthood. And what does that mean? It means that you know, to be a priest is to be a mediator between creator and creation, that we kind of stand in the gap between the two. So in Israel, that's what their priests were there to do. Um, that was a very specialized role that certain people and even certain families would carry in the Jewish tradition. And Peter's saying, now all of you are priests. You're all called to the priesthood, to stand in the gap. And you see this all the way through scripture, even that the way in which God creates Adam in the garden is to stand in the gap between creator and creation. And it kind of reminds me of like last week when Paul's talking about like you are an ambassador your job is to go out into a foreign land to be there on behalf of the king, to speak on behalf of the king. And it's very similar to what we're seeing here, that we are called to be a holy or set aside priesthood of all believers, that we are the mediators between creator and creation. So this speaks to our purpose. That's your job. Whenever, you know, whenever you're at a, uh, a party and someone's like, so what do you do? Just say, well, I am a holy and royal priest on behalf of the almighty. How about you? And just see how that goes over. Um, but that's our purpose. That's our job. You know, and as, as a church, we have these kind of three theological values that it's, first of all, we have intimacy with, with God. We're learning how to inhabit our identities in Christ so that we can discover our purpose as the spirit-led church. So we don't do this job of being a priest to earn points from God. That's not what it's about. But it's a way for us, as, as he even says here, to kind of like to continue that work of salvation in you. Something happens to us when we go out and start doing the things that God is calling us to do, where we really come to terms of understanding who we are. And the other phrase that he uses here, um, which I love, is uh, that we are strangers and resident aliens in this land. How many, are any other resident aliens? You know, Jonathan, back there, we got some people. Johnny, yeah? 
like, you're not from around these parts, you know? Um, so, you know, obviously it's a story that I've lived well, and, and Jonathan and I were talking about it earlier this week, um, him being from Canada, America's hat. And uh, <clears throat> my dad said when he was growing up, he learned Canada's 3,000 miles long and about 150 miles tall, because that's only where the people live. <laughs> I don't think that's true. Um, but he was saying, he's like, even, even now, there's still these little nuanced things about understanding what it means to live in the United States. And I, and I feel that too. There's always these kind of, you're just learning the lay of the land and how Americans think and how they feel and how they act and what's appropriate and what's inappropriate. And like a lot of things that the rest of you probably just take for granted. Like, it's just like, well, this is just where we live. This is just our culture. And it's a lot of those unnamed things, but it's interesting when you're a resident alien, when you're a stranger, when you're a foreigner, you notice things that the locals probably don't notice because it's not a given for you. And this kind of goes in line with what Paul was talking about again last week with being an ambassador. Like as an ambassador, you live in a foreign country, but your true allegiance is to the king who sent you. And so Peter is picking up on that similar idea for us as Christians. Our first citizenship is in heaven. Like that's, that's, your, that's your real allegiance. That's your real citizenship. Any other citizenship you have is secondary to that. And so being a resident alien means that you, you want to know, like, how do the locals think? What are their customs? What do they eat? You're curious about these things, but you want to retain a sense of your true citizenship. And I think that, again, is where we've gone very wrong in this country when we think, you know, especially this, this idea that this is a Christian nation. We, under, we just assume whatever the United States of America does must be Christian. And whatever is Christian must be the United States of America. And those things have been so conflated for many of us, we don't actually know how to see those cultural markers that do actually run contrary to the kingdom of heaven because we believe that they're exactly the same thing. And then we come to this very, very tricky portion uh, towards the end there, to be subject to every human institution, uh, to the emperor, on the emperor, etc., etc. Now, this could be a whole sermon series, and I'm sure you guys love it when I talk about politics. I had someone come up to me one time and say, I can't wait until you get back to preaching the gospel and moving away from politics. <laughs> that person doesn't go to this church anymore. <clears throat> Not because of anything I did. It's just like, I'm going to give you the gospel as best I know how. So a few things just to understand with that little portion, because I'm sure that felt very uncomfortable to some of you. And like I said, it could be a whole, maybe it will be a whole other sermon sometime, but very quickly. Uh, number one, remember, they are not living in a democracy. There is an emperor and you don't get to have a say in that. So that's a very, very big difference to the way that we live today. There is actually, there is no precedent in the Bible for how Christians are supposed to live in a democracy. I mean, just think of like, Christians never got a say, and, and, Jew, and Jews, like they never got a say in who gets to be in charge. That's a new phenomenon. And there are really, really great Christian thinkers out there who are thinking our way into how we can be faithful and be present in the public discourse. And it's usually not the ways that we think that we're doing it. Um, again, because we think to be American is to be Christian, to be Christian is to be American. Um, so they didn't get a say. So Peter is speaking to people that they don't have any kind of vote. They're not, you know, they're not able to contribute to this public discourse in any meaningful way. Uh, number two 
is to remember that human institutions and leaders can work against the kingdom of God. Um, and we see this kind of all throughout the story. We see Jesus standing up to these powers and principalities being very critical. John the Baptist, of course, is beheaded because he's critical of the king. So what Peter's saying here and what Paul says in Romans 13 is not give a stamp of approval to everything that the emperor does, okay? Um, a lot of times we go to Romans 13 or we go to 1 Peter 2 when it's just like, you know, submit yourself to authorities because they've been placed there by God. We only pick out that verse when, when our guy is in the White House. Like I had a discussion about this with someone about the last president. They were like, well, you're just supposed to, you know, God ordained him to be there. And I was like, what about the guy before him? He's like, well, I don't know about him. He was a bit of a liar. I'm like, it doesn't matter. Like you can't pick and choose which leaders you want to apply that theology to. So it doesn't mean that God approves of whomever is in charge. It means that God has given us this, this right to create order through government. And there's an extent to which government keeps people safe. And that is the peace that is God ordained. But of course, of course, of course, governmental leaders um, and authorities can overstep those bounds and actually be disobedient to the things that God has called them to. And indeed, we even see Peter um, at the end of his life is crucified by Emperor Nero upside down because he refused to sacrifice that allegiance to King Jesus. So you are never, ever to subject yourself to uh, human rulers and authorities if it is asking you to sacrifice your allegiance to King Jesus, okay? Um, almost got in a fight with my, uh, my immigration guy because we were coming up to this piece. It's like the, you know, will you take up arms on behalf of your country? And I was like, I have a religious objection to that. And he's like, do you want to become a citizen? And I was like, yeah, but I don't have to say that. And he's like... He's like, listen, he's like, it's, the scenario is probably like, we've been attacked, like they're invading Orlando for some reason, and like, you have to hold a gun. I'm like, I don't know, can I just be in the, like a medic or something weird, you know? <clears throat> because I have a religious uh, exception to, to that. Like, I, I don't want to compromise my beliefs as an ambassador of the kingdom, as a resident alien, to do things uh, like that. Um, so I just kind of cantaloupe watermelon that part of the oath of all, like, you know, uh, if you're from this country, you, you didn't have to take this oath when you were born, but if you come into it, you start and you say, I will hereby abdicate um, all allegiances to any foreign principalities and then take up our arms on behalf of the United States. That's not the number two thing that you promised to do, which is like, wow, okay, cool. Um, but I think that's very important is we recognize God has a plan for worldly power structures um, and human institutions. Um, but we do not give blind obedience. Um, we don't uh, do anything that causes us to compromise our allegiance to Jesus. So we have a very difficult relationship with the institutions of the world. But like I said, there are wonderful thinkers that are doing some of that work. But I think the biggest thing that I kind of draw uh, from Peter in this passage is this, that the church is a ragtag group of strangers built on the foundation of King Jesus, seeking to embody the kingdom of heaven. That's who we are. And there is a very strong difference between the kingdom of heaven and the church. Those are not the same thing, as many of you will know if you've ever met Christians. <laughs> the nice thing about being a hypocrite 
which is a great way to start a sentence. The nice thing about being a hypocrite is you're only a hypocrite until you admit that you're one, and then all of a sudden you're not. You're just a human being after that point. And that's what a lot of times people have a problem with God or with this idea of the kingdom of heaven because they know too many Christians, um, which I sympathize for. I happen to know a lot of Christians as well, and they're very difficult people. Um, as the church, we're this, we're this group of people that God has brought together, like our imaginations have been awakened to the possibilities of a different way of being human. And God bound us together, you and me, as this family so that we can seek and then embody the kingdom, which is a different thing. So the kingdom of heaven is perfection. The church is far from perfect, but we're the group of people that have committed to, to discovering that kingdom and then embodying it. I think that's very, very important difference for us to understand. And I love that little line that he has in there where he's kind of playing off uh, a couple quotations in Hosea where he says, once you were no people, but now you are God's people. That before you were rescued into this new humanity, before you were part of the church, you were adrift without a story to tell you who you are. And you are being pulled every which way by all these competing narratives in our culture that are supposed to tell you this is what it means to be you. And these are the kinds of things that you're supposed to value. And these are the things you're supposed to chafe after in life. And you were just being pulled apart. You were a no people. But now you are God's people. That's the foundation there. So how does this being the church thing, seeking to embody the kingdom, how does that shape our posture to the world? How does that shape like our ethical stance? Like what are we called to be and what are we called to do as our vocation for the sake of the world? One of the thinkers that I think is helping us to reimagine our relationship to the world is um, the theologian Stanley Hauerwas. And he says this, the most creative social strategy we have to offer is the church. Here, we show the world a manner of life the world can never achieve through social coercion or governmental action. We serve the world by showing it something that it is not, namely a place where God is forming a family out of strangers. And I love that Charity even has that last line as, as part of the encouragement for our engagement team. Now, you read that and you might feel like, wow, that just feels like not true because I've been part of the church. And I think that that's the problem, is that we think that church is, uh, we've all been personally saved by Jesus, and we come in this room, and there's a bunch of autonomous units that are just kind of bumping into each other for an hour and a half on a Sunday, and then we go back out into our personal salvation, and that's the extent of it. Um, and then when we do that, like, the way we treat one another in the church doesn't really look that much different from the way that people who aren't part of the church treat each other. And I think that's the problem. But I think what the other interesting thing that Hauerwas is encouraging us to recognize here is that it's not our job to establish the kingdom of heaven or to impose the kingdom of heaven. We reveal the kingdom. And I think that that's a very important differentiation. What happens when we impose the kingdom of heaven? We try to impose Christian morality over people through the law. So we try to get Christians... Uh, in specific places in government so they can do Christian things and just kind of turn everybody else into Christians. Or we go to foreign countries, like, oh, I don't know, maybe all of Latin America, 
and we impose the church and we impose our culture in the name of Jesus, and it's basically the same thing. And then we pull away and we leave them with this crisis of faith in this hyper-institutionalized church that rules people by fear and coercion. So we see that social coercion, governmental action. Like the church, we've been doing that thing for a couple hundred years now. Um, and that's not what we're called to do. We don't impose the kingdom. We reveal the kingdom. And the first and best way that we reveal the kingdom is in how you and I treat one another. So the way in which we practice being the church, when we gather together, when we worship together, and I loved how Megan introduced that new song today, like we're singing all these things, being like, when everything feels crazy and I feel like I will still, you are still worthy of praise. Like we are this group of people who are so insane to believe that when everything seems like it's burning up, like God is still worthy of praise and God is still doing something. The way we treat one another, the way that we love each other well, the way we maintain that bond that no other kind of like political ideology can tear us apart. When we're so devoted to one another, we stand as this alternative society to show the world there is actually a whole other way of being a human being and a whole other way of escaping the insanity of this hyper-moral, hyper-legalistic, um, just craziness that we find in our country. But that means that we need a kingdom imagination to believe that we can actually come out from under these dividing walls of hostility that continue to be established and reestablished by uh, the society around us. To believe that we can become this new family, that we're not divided along those classic lines that we see of rich and poor or black and white or male and female or whatever it might be, that we, we can believe that we can leave all of that behind. Christ has already destroyed all of that and has brought us together as this new family. And that's our primary def definition. We need that imagination uh, to be different, to, be, to think differently about the world. One of my favorite bands when I was younger is this band called Fugazi. They're a punk rock band from DC. They're great, really great. Um, and there was this really interesting interview. Um, this would have been like in the early 90s with their singer, Ian MacKay. And they're talking about like this woman, she kind of works in the music industry. And she can, she's, she was talking about them like they started, the, they started their own bands in the 80s. They started their own record label. They would only charge like $5 for shows. They didn't have merch. Like, and they were incredible, like very successful. And she's talking to him about this whole thing like, you guys have done your own record label and you have your own band. Like you don't, you know, you don't participate in this larger music industry in the way that it's been operating for so long. And he said, listen, he's like, there's people out there that they can take a product and they can mass produce it, make a million of it, and they can sell it. And he's like, and that's amazing. He's like, that's even kind of admirable in a way that like some people can do that. He goes, that's just got nothing to do with what we do. He's like, this this, our record label, this whole movement, this whole scene came out of the, these young people who were full of activity and just wanted to do something that mattered that's ours. And I love that. It's almost like a punk rock theology to go, I don't, like whatever they're doing over there has nothing to do with me. I don't care. Like I'm going to do our thing. It's, you see that? Like there's a difference. Like it's not reactionary. It's not like, well, the world's going this way and I'm going that. And again, that's a lot of the problem that we've had in this kind of 
colonialist mentality of like evangelism and missions is like, well, when society goes this way, I'm going to go that way. And then when the society calls me a jerk, now I'm persecuted. So hooray, I did it. And it's like, it's, we're, it's insane. Like we're in this reactionary mode. And I think for us as a church to almost be inert, <laughs> like we do what we do and we, we observe what's happening around us in the world as things are constantly ebbing and flowing, as empires come and go, but we continue to be bound together and say, this, this is the thing we're doing. This is the thing that we are convicted of. And historically, the church has been most effective when we don't try to legislate morality, but when we become the shining city on a hill, which is another phrase that American, the American empire took from us and imposed upon this country because it's American Christianity basically the same. But we are called to be this shining city on a hill that the people look at us and go, look at that strange group of people who just seem to love each other so consistently and they're so devoted to one another and they don't get caught up in all of these culture war debates and all these things. The way they talk about each other is amazing. And then they go out and they love these whole other categories. Like they love their enemies. Like what is that? Like they, they seem to bring these entirely different solutions to the problems of the day instead of just giving a stamp of approval to Democrat solutions or Republican solutions. Like who are they? And it's our oddness as the church that might save the world. It's that we're so strange in the way that we treat one another and we give this example to the world of what it looks like when God is king. Because every position we take first flows from the throne of King Jesus. I believe everything is theology. Like every position that you take, every opinion that you have, everything you think about yourself, everything that you think about abortion or LGBT rights or Disney World or whatever the thing is we're fighting about this week, like whatever you believe, it's theology because you have something to say about God. That's what theology is. It just means words about God. So everything that you think is an extension of what you think about God. You don't realize that because no one ever told you that. Because maybe God doesn't have an opinion on a whole bunch of things that are happening in the world because he's just going to burn it all up anyway and we're supposed to be zapped off to a cloud to play harp with a bunch of baby angels. But when we slow down and we pivot back to King Jesus and we build our, our position on all of these issues from there, we might be surprised by our conclusions. I am very, very wary whenever I see Christians lining up with every plank in one of our political party's platforms. I'm very distrustful of that. In fact, I think a lot of times the political positions that Christians should take when it comes to all these different issues makes us really slippery. Like we're really hard to pin down on like who's our team and who we're against or whatever because we, our positioning is coming out of uh, first recognizing Jesus as king. But you see the powers and the principalities, even though God has ordained these things and given us the right to self-rule and we often do a very terrible job at it, like the powers and the principalities, they want to keep us in black and white unimaginative thinking. They wanna keep you stupid and you're not stupid. They want to tell you, you have two choices. You can be pro-choice cho or you can be pro-life. 
they want to keep you stupid because then you keep voting for them. And I'm not saying don't vote, although that's a, that's a theological position that you can take. And they want to do that. They want to continue to demonize the other side. They want to say, oh, the people over there that are responsible for these things, like they're subhuman. Um, so we need to overcome them. We need to destroy the other team, and then our team is going to win. It is in the best interests of many politicians today to keep you stupid, but you're not stupid. You're actually very smart. And as you start to learn how to do theology, how to think theologically, how to start your position on the world from the throne of King Jesus, and then start to contribute, people aren't going to know what to think of you. And that's amazing to me. We get to stand for this alternative vision of humanity that sometimes it might seem absolutely crazy. And there's room for disagreement and debate in the church, obviously, but we do that arm in arm. Like, we, we don't agree on everything, but we love each other so profoundly that we're not willing to walk away for these kind of lesser doctrinal issues or who you voted for or what your opinion is on this very obscure issue or whatever it might be. Like, we wrestle those things out, but we do it arm in arm because we are called to be the church. So I want to invite you to stand with me. <clears throat> and we're going to enter back into worship. We're going to have, I want to have some of the elders and leaders are going to be kind of on the sides here. And maybe today you need a blessing. You need someone to speak life over you. That's what these people are for. Um, maybe you need someone to take confession because you've fallen into that idolatry of black and white thinking um, and, you've, and you've kind of abdicated that place of Jesus on the throne and you've put somebody else on the throne um, and they've shaped your thinking and you know that you need to come away from that and then come back to Jesus. Like these people are here to pray over you in that as well. Um, but what we do uh, as the church is that we don't just simply take positions, we, we confess. We are a confessional church which means that we continue to tell the truth. We speak the truth over one another. We speak the truth to God, and then we speak the truth to the world. So together, we're going to recite um, the words of the Nicene Creed. Um, this is an ancient creed uh, that the early church kind of put together in the fourth century and said, this is the story. This is the story that saves the world. This is what we believe. No matter what's happening in the news, no matter what I'm feeling in this moment, like all of the chaos and everything spinning around me, like this is our center of gravity as Christians. And so we're going to recite the Nicene Creed and then we're going to step back into worship. So together we say, we believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. 
He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshiped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Let's worship. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.